The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. In our study of the Ten Commandments today, I'd like for us to return to the Seventh Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Last week I began this series of messages on the Seventh Commandment by just sort of stepping back, walking away, closing the Bible. And that's because the commandment is so direct, it is uh, simple, it's to the point that there's really not an explanation that's needed of this commandment. It's devastating. There isn't a married person who doesn't cringe to think that this sin might be committed against them. It leaves emotional wreckage. It ruins the life. It hurts relationships. If your mate cheats on you, that is a violation of the sacred trust that is unrecoverable. The feeling of having someone love us and love us alone is a part of who we are. The core of this command is the expectation of fidelity. It's the faithfulness and trust between two people who have been joined together, as the Bible describes, as being one flesh. That's a vital thing in the marriage union. And most importantly, though, the seventh commandment is modeled after God's faithfulness. Last week, uh, in the introduction to the command, we spoke mostly about that, that it represents God's faithfulness to His people and the covenant relationship that he has with those who are believed, uh, who are joined with Christ, rather, uh, by belief, by faith in him. And so your marriage and your faithfulness in your marriage is a picture of faithfulness to God, and in turn, his faithfulness to you. What God has promised is that he would never leave us or forsake us. He promised us an everlasting love, and in return for that promise, we vow that we will love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And so there is agreement between us and God. There is a covenant that is to be fulfilled that hinges on unqualified fidelity. Uh, this is the way that God began his relationship with Israel, the way that he represented that relationship with Israel. They were a wife. They had the role of a wife that was married to a faithful husband. But when that wife went away and began to worship false gods, he called them an unfaithful wife, and he said that they were guilty of adultery. Now, in each of the commandments, we need to consider, what does this commandment teach us about God? What is the main thing that the commandment says about our relationship with him? What kind of characteristic of God will flow out of this commandment? And this is what we find. It is the characteristic, the attribute of God that is his faithfulness. It's a picture of our union with God. And so faithfulness to our spouse is emblematic of God's faithfulness to us. And in last week's uh, message, we, we looked at marriage and we looked at the uh, comparisons of marriage to God's faithfulness. The violation of trust in marriage is adultery, an act that is committed against a person's own flesh and blood. Paul wrote that no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And then he went on to talk about how that uh, we are the flesh and bones, the body of Jesus Christ, and therefore being one with him, we should be faithful. So faithfulness is the key to the command. 
God teaches us to be faithful because He is faithful, and the commandments teach us to be like Him. Now today, I want to kind of switch the focus a little bit, and we want to drill down more on the physical aspects of adultery. We've looked at the spiritual comparisons, and now I'd like to take some time to look at the human side of the sin and see why that this is such a terrible violation of human relationships. Much of what I'm going to say to you is self-evident. We know that it's destructive. You don't have to be a Christian to know that this is bad and why it is so bad. For this reason, it is because it's an internal command that's written on the human heart. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, God gave Eve to be Adam's wife. And the Bible says that she was made of his bones, that she was taken from a rib from his side. It says, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now, God is uniquely rich in his object lessons. The wife was actually taken out of man's flesh, which represents the closeness of this indissoluble union. And since that time, people have always known that marriage is not only a partnership, but it's also ownership, that the husband owns his wife's body, and likewise the wife owns her husband's body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. But as we know, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, our sin nature upsets the natural order. And so you have people that want to throw out the sacred union of marriage. Uh, they don't understand why that marriage has to be so restrictive. They may not want it to be that way. Not to be tied to one person and devoted to that one person forever. And so there are some that will experiment with open marriages. And they allow multiple partners. But you know what always happens in those relationships? What do they always discover? They discover that humans are not made to be like that. That we're not made to live that way. And so ultimately there is jealousy. A man is not fulfilled with many partners. He wants his own. He wants the one that belongs to him alone. A wife wants her own husband. She wants him to love her alone and not to love anyone else. And he wants her, she wants him to cherish only her. So it doesn't, it doesn't work to experiment with marriage. The various definitions of marriage, such as calling same-sex unions marriage and granting all the same privileges to that as we do to heterosexual marriages, doesn't work. Those things will bring us down. Society is torn apart by those things because there is a law that's written on the heart, and to change that is to suppress it, and it suppresses the natural order that God wrote on the heart. The violation of the innate destroys the moral fabric of society. And so the fidelity of marriage is something that is written on the heart. Is that really true? Well, Ezekiel Hopkins wrote that before Christianity reached England, that the Saxons demanded capital punishment for adultery. Now, we're talking about a time uh, prior to 65 A.D. That's when Christianity reached England. Many people were converted. And when they were converted, these laws about adultery stood in place because the innate law was already taught in Christianity. Now, amazingly, when Catholicism reached England about three centuries later, it overturned these laws against adultery. Uh, Catholicism arrived with its adulterous priest, 
and taught that death was too severe. And so they turned the Saxon beliefs upside down, and the penalty for it was downgraded to accommodate licentious priest and the Pope. But God never reduced the penalty. The command represents him and his people of faithfulness and fidelity, and to break the marriage vow is to upset God's order, just as it is to worship another god upsets God's order. Well, the Scriptures have much to say about this, and when we teach it, it ought to be on the Bible's terms. But the subject is salacious. It stirs up the human mind, the depraved mind. Many want their mind stirred up, and so they like to talk about these things. There's a multi-billion dollar porn industry that thrives on people who love to discuss these things. And the desire to talk about it has infected our churches so much that sometimes sermons have become pornographic. Uh, Maybe you didn't know this, but in some churches there are sex classes that are taught. There are marriage classes that include sexual demonstrations. The talk is loose and scintillating, and it's shameful what they put into the minds of the people. And don't think that I'm only talking about liberal churches in the San Francisco area or those that are located in the cesspool of the porn industry in L.A. I'm also talking about independent fundamental churches. And I could give you plenty of examples of that, but I don't need to talk to you about what I've, what I've heard and about what I've read. I can tell you what I know from personal experience. Last year, I listened to a sermon by a preacher that I know very well. He's a Baptist pastor. I've sat down and I've talked with him many times. I went onto his church website and I wanted to listen to one of his sermons. And while I was searching, I came across a sermon that he had preached on the Song of Solomon. This is a pastor that often does a series on the family. And I don't do that very often. And so I was kind of looking at that and thinking about the subject. And I just read through the Song of Solomon and I wondered how that he would handle that that subject and what interpretation that he would give to it. My wife had attended a service there some time before this, and she told me that she would never go back. Uh, She happened to be there on a Sunday that the pastor was talking about the family, and she said that she was terribly embarrassed by the explicit conversation in the sermon. Well, I was interested in how he would handle the Song of Solomon, and so I listened to his sermon, and I would have to tell you that I was so mad I was so incensed at what I heard that it took me, I would say, more than a week to calm down. And this is because this man took the sweet metaphors of Scripture, things that the Bible keeps shrouded in mystery so that they wouldn't dare produce impure thoughts. And he thought that he was smart, and he thought that he was a great Bible expositor because he could unlock these descriptions that are found in the Song of Solomon in order to tell a tawdry tale. And his explanation, his exposition was a description of bedroom scenes and seduction, things that I wouldn't dare explain. And so I'll go no further than this than to say that it was very explicit. And as I listened to that, I could hear the congregation in the background getting into his sermon, and they were snickering as he joked about and described about things that the Bible could say, but the Bible didn't dare to say. And so instead of teaching people not to defile the marriage bed, he put suggestions into the minds of mixed company, the mixed congregation. And there you had in this church service an orgy of the mind in a fundamental Baptist church service. Now, I was disgusted by that. Solomon could have said everything that he said, but he didn't. 
Solomon could have used all the metaphors in a different way or explained all of his metaphors, and he didn't. Preachers and commentators have preached the text for centuries and have never seen fit to break down those metaphors to put them into crude language. But not this pastor. He had to bear it all because of depraved minds. People want to hear these things. And so in our exposition of this commandment, I, I promise you, I don't have any such purpose. Impure thoughts lead to adultery. If not the physical act, then adultery in the mind. Jesus said that it would. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And there Jesus tells us that the evil heart is the breeding ground of adultery. And what our society is doing is sowing massive fields of adultery and cultivating them with fertilizing dung and harvesting them with massive combines of TV, radio, billboards, music, and Madison Avenue. And they all know that sex sells. And they know that more sex sells more. And so the seeds of promiscuity are sown and adultery is its crop. And the church knows all of this. They know the same things that the porn industry knows. And so if you want to crowd at a sermon, preach it with innuendo. Preach it with suggestive ways. One of the fastest growing churches in the Seattle area grew in a short time to 12,000 members with more than 250,000 views of their podcast every week, 15,000 people in satellite congregations. And that church was built on the risque preaching of a pastor who finally had to be suspended for sinful behavior. Well, I intend to preach on this subject, but it will be without suggestion. And so if you want something else, this is not the place to hear it. I don't believe in splitting open the seamier side of all of this and mixed company. For centuries, Bible authors and preachers haven't needed to do that. They know how to handle this subject without doing it. But nevertheless, it does need to be taught. And it needs to be taught from a biblical perspective. This is a sin that is very, very bad. It tops the list of things in the Bible that it says we are to avoid, sins that we are to avoid. I can't make it as bad as it is. So first, and what we're going to talk about today in this message, is the egregious sin of adultery. And I'll say also first that I'm not mad about anything. Uh, we're all sinners that are saved by God's grace. I'm not angry, but I know that God is. I'm not angry at anybody here, and at times it may sound that way as I preach this sermon, but I'm not angry. I just know that God is. God is angry at the sins of people in the world. So I'm doing the best to show you uh, how troubling this is. We find adultery and adulterers and adulteress, those words are found more than 50 times in the English translation of the Scripture. And that's not to mention the many other times that there are other words that are used that mean the same thing. And I don't want to sound like an alarmist. I don't want to sound like I'm a million years behind the times. I'm teaching you from the timeless Word of God. And these, these things are as true today as they were when they were given. The Scripture has a lot to say about the egregious sin of adultery. The Old Testament speaks of it over and over again, speaking of the physical act and then comparing that to spirit, comparing it, or comparing it rather to spiritual actions. 
And interestingly, the New Testament keeps on talking about it. It puts in the list of the worst sins, and it often says that this is to be strictly avoided by God's people. I read this comment by one commentator. He quoted from Hebrews 13.4. We read this last week. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. His comment was, doesn't God judge all sin? And why does God specifically say that whoremongers and adulterers, he will judge? And his explanation was that God considers this sin to be among the most heinous of all. Do you think of it in that way? I don't think modern society does, but that's the way that God looks at it. And could you imagine that God would put this sin at the top of the list of some of the worst things, some of the worst things that you can think of, Adultery shows up at the top because most of the worst things that you can think of are somehow connected with this very sin. Now, the worst part of the sin is what we talked about last week, and that is the connection that it has to God's character, that it is against the covenant of fidelity. And so we need to know the effects of this sin. We need to know how it can be committed and also how to avoid it. Now, the interesting thing about... uh, This conversation that I had with uh, someone that uh, was living in adultery was his misunderstanding of what adultery actually, what it actually is. So let's first of all do this. Let's let's understand what what this term means. I've given you only part of the picture, so let's get down into it further by talking about the definition of adultery. Now the conversation I just referred to is when A young man came to my office to talk with me. Uh, He was visiting the church, and he was interested in becoming a member. And he was in college, and he had come to one of our services. Then after the service, he wanted to talk with me. And I don't remember the entire conversation, but the part that he was interested in, he was concerned about, was that in the sermon, I had said something about premarital sex. I read a passage on adultery, and this young man was then living with his girlfriend. Now, it's sad that I have to do this, but when young people, young couples come to the church and they want to talk to me about becoming members here and about salvation, there's a question that I have to ask. It's sad that I have to ask it, but the sin is so common that I always begin these kinds of conversations with, are you living together? And sadly, the answer to that question is often yes. And the interesting thing about this conversation was that I had preached on adultery, and to my surprise, this young man had no idea what adultery was. He heard the sermon, he heard the word, but the meaning of it was foreign to him. And so I just found this to be just so strange that I had to define this word adultery. Young people live together, and they do that without thinking that they're involved in some very serious moral consequences. When parents provide condoms to teenage boys and contraceptives to their teenage daughters when they assume that they are just naturally sexually active, how do you think that teenagers are going to understand and have a conscience about this sin? And so moving in together before marriage is pretty much the dating scheme today. It used to be that people had long courtships in order to build a relationship. Now it's a one-night stand that may turn into a few more nights and then finally into cohabitation. And I mention this because adultery is really more broad-ranging than what we've already talked about. When, when the Bible says here in that 14th verse of Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's speaking of a broad, in a broader context of just what's done within marriage. 
The context that I have used it thus far this week and last week has been the marriage context. Adultery is when two married people or one or the other has intimate relationships with someone that's other than husband or wife. That's the primary meaning that we find in the Scriptures. That's the one that matches the adultery, that the spiritual adultery that God used when He said that Israel was adulterous. But the seventh commandment is much broader. There's also fornication. Hebrews 5.32 says, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Fornication is a word that you would know well if you could see it in the Greek. It comes from the word pornea, from which we get pornography. And it includes any sexual act that is outside of marriage. It includes the type of adultery we've already talked about, the adultery to, for married people. This is also a term that would, would uh, forbid incest. It also forbids homosexual acts. It includes bestiality. And you probably guess from the meaning of the word coming from the Greek, pornea, that it also includes pornography. And so for any of you that think that you're safe, that you're safe in your marriage, that you've never broken your marriage vow, if you're in the cesspool of pornography, you have. You are included in this command. Pornography is an adulterous violation of the marriage vow. How? Well, Jesus explained that in Matthew 5:28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. And then there's another uh, interesting thought here that you might not, might not have thought of, and that is that adultery also includes the sin of gluttony. I know that sounds very strange, but, it's, but if food takes over your life as a controlling passion and you abuse your body through food, that is also adultery. That's a desire of the flesh that consumes a person without restraint. The Bible says that a part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Proverbs 23, verse 2 says, Put a knife to your throat if you are a glutton. Proverbs 28, verse 7, Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he is a companion of riotous men, shameth his father. And if you looked at the underlying text in that verse, you would find that it says, uh, you check the margin notes wherever, this literally means that a glutton shames his father. So we need to understand that adultery includes a lot of sins, Primarily, it involves or concerns sexual sins. Any sex outside of marriage is considered. And to anyone who thinks, well, we can solve part of this problem by letting homosexual couples get married, therefore they're no longer in adultery, well, that's wrong. Uh, God does not consider that to be marriage. That is packaged perversion, and we ought to preach against it. And then there are some who, who think that we ought to be well, they're really concerned about how nice that we are when we talk about such sins. I don't find that the Scriptures are nice about it at all. Uh, I would like to see a, a Bible passage that treats it that way. I see where the Bible speaks of homosexuality as being among the worst of dehumanizing sins, among the worst of abominations, and often that sin is used to represent the very worst that God's people could do. And so this definition of adultery is broad, I have no doubt that all of us are guilty of it in some way, so I'm not setting ourselves up and saying that, well, that's everybody else, this is not us. 
No, it is so broad-reaching that I'm sure that all of us have, have been involved in it in some way, that we've broken this command just like we have the other of the Ten Commandments. And so what we need is for Jesus to fix this sin in us, just like he does all the others when we come to faith in him. Secondly, we can look at the dishonesty of adultery. Now, particularly in the marriage union, adultery is dishonesty. Would I really need to explain that? If you never saw a Bible in your life, you know, you've heard these descriptions. Adultery is described as this way. This man cheated on his wife. Or you hear it this way. The woman was unfaithful to her husband. That tells you that it's breaking a promise, that cheating and unfaithfulness are other ways of dishonesty or saying dishonesty. Do you trust dishonest people? Can you steal from someone and say that you're honest? Adultery is stealing. Uh, the courts used to say or used to call these kinds of things alienation, alienation of affections, that is, stealing affection that belongs to someone else. The last commandment says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Why? Because if you go get her, you have committed an egregious act against your neighbor. You've stolen from him. If you listen to Proverbs 9.17, it says, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That refers primarily to adultery. For the time, it seems sweet and it's pleasant. Proverbs 5.15 says, You're not supposed to steal water. It says, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. And again, that refers to faithfulness. So you stay away from stolen waters and you drink from your own well. Proverbs 6.34 says that you will enrage your neighbor and nothing will satisfy him but vengeance. And it says that you take fire to your bosom if you commit this sin. And that's why often love trysts will be a cause of murder. And it's remarkable that someone would so easily cheat on their and they're made, and they look at the person that they cheat with, and they say, well, he is just so dreamy. He's the greatest. He's such a loving and gentle person. He cares for me in ways that my husband doesn't. That's a fool. Because that person is a conniving cheat. He's a liar. He steals. He is dishonest. And like the worst fool on the planet, you trust in someone who's the lowest of the low, and so both you and he have committed vile sins. What have you done? Violated holy matrimony. The sin is vile. It's as black as hell, which is what the Bible says, where the Bible says that people will go who commit it. Thirdly, is the devastation of adultery. Now you start with the devastation of the family. Adultery destroys the family. The family is the basic building block. It's the wharf and the whoop, whoop of society. Do you understand that saying, the warp and the woof? That actually comes from, the biblical reference, that comes from Leviticus 13.48. The warp and the woof are the cross threads of the garment. Uh, in metaphorical terms, that stands for the basic underlying structure. And that's what family is. It's the warp and the woof of society. And adultery rips that fabric. And the worst of it is when children are involved. A man can sin against his wife, a wife against her husband, and certainly that's bad. But what kind of cad does it take to look into the face of a child and tell that child that you're about to rip the family out from underneath him? 
that messes up their lives. It robs them of the hope of stability. Probably the worst statement that I've ever heard was when I was counseling with a married couple about divorce. And I brought up their children. And I said, what about them? And as calm as a cucumber, one of them looked at me and said, they'll get over it. And they justified it by saying that millions of children go through it. Why not ours? That's disgusting. Disgustingly sick. And I've heard it said so many times, well, I deserve to be happy. I deserve happiness. I, I, I deserve this. And so I've got to go find somebody else. I'm not happy in my marriage. I deserve that. And it sounds just like the abortion argument. It's all about me. It's all about me. Kill the baby because it's about me. And that's what divorce is. It's all about my happiness. Let the life of the child be damned. This is about me and my animal desires. Well, adultery can be devastating to a family because of things like debt. There are families that split up and then the argument is about who gets what. The divorce lawyer makes out pretty well. The divorce people, not so much. And so there are fights over prosperity or the property, who gets the retirement account, who gets the furniture, who gets the children, how often, when and where. And adultery reduces the children to chattel. Everything's a bargaining chip. Oh, but you remember adultery, it started out with love, didn't it? That, that's what got you into it, didn't it? It was love. No, it's not love, it's lust, mistaken for love, not understanding what love is. Stolen waters are sweet, except when they quickly become stagnant, rancid, sectic tanks. Now let me continue with that thought, with this next, and that is the debasing of adultery. Adultery is in the company of very bad sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. There we see that adultery is in the company of thieves. We've already said that, didn't we? It's in the company of drunkards. We've said that too, because drunkenness is a form of gluttony. Idolaters are in there. God accused Israel of idolatry because of their adultery. And then you see that it says, abusers of themselves with mankind. That's the word arsenikoites, and it means sodomites. It's not a kind reference. It's speaking of ways that people degrade themselves to the level of animals. Now, if you'll listen to Jeremiah 5.8, he describes lewdness in Israel. This is what God said through the prophet. He said, how shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, they then committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in harlots' houses. They were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Now, I don't want to get too graphic about this, but to understand the Bible, you've, you've got to understand the illustrations. These things don't matter if you don't know what they mean. And the symbolism here is demonstrative. They were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. In other places of Scripture, that is described as animals in heat. When I walk up Taylor Mountain, there are, there are cows on the trail. I like cows. It's comical sometimes to see first-timers that go up on the mountain and they're surprised by cows. 
and they've never been around cows. Well, the first thing that I think is funny is when I see people taking pictures of the cows because they think they're taking pictures of wildlife. And so the, the, the turkeys and the deer are standing back and saying, over here, stupid, why are you taking pictures of the cows? And then it's also comical to, to see people that are afraid of them. Uh, I, I met a lady that was hurrying down the mountain as quickly as she could, and, and she said, have you seen the cows up there? Have you seen the cows? And she was worried, what's going to eat her first, a mountain lion or a mountain cow? Well, cow, cows are okay with me, but there are times when I don't want to see a cow. That's when the cow's in heat. And that's when the bull comes, and he comes up and he smells the heifer. And he's not smelling her breath, because she doesn't care what, he doesn't care what she looks like. He's on the other end. And, and this is the picture that we find in Jeremiah 5, verse 8. The people, he says, are like horses in heat. That's a disgusting moral picture. People are like animals, and you have to deal with that in your own mind of how the Bible describes these different forms of immorality. Ezekiel Hopkins said this about adultery. He said, it debases a man from the excellency of his nature and resembles him to the condition of brute beast. The perfection of a man is to govern himself according to law and reason, to bound and circumscribe his actions by the rules of what is fit and honest. Whereas beasts show the inferiority of their natures by the scope and range of their unguided appetites. What does adultery do? It debases. Alley catting is adultery. It brings disease. It pollutes. People in Bible times were driven to madness by syphilis and gonorrhea. It eats away the mind. It turns to madness. Today our problem is mostly AIDS. What are we supposed to do about AIDS? How are we going to stop that? How do we, how do we prevent it? Is it with condoms? No. With abstinence. Let every man have his own wife. That's what Paul wrote. That's the cure. Now listen to Proverbs again. I mean, Proverbs has more to say about the idiocy of illicit sexual uh, the, being involved in these kinds of things than any other book. Illicit sex is often found in Proverbs. Proverbs 5, 3 and 4. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Later on in the 11th verse, it says that flesh and body are consumed by adultery. And then you listen to this, uh, if you want a graphic image, Proverbs 23, 27, for a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. And so adulterous women, people, are compared to prostitutes, which the proverb says is a deep ditch. That's variously defined as a, as a pit that's too deep to climb out of. Some describe it as a cesspool that you don't want to swim in. Thomas Watson said something that resonates. He, he said that it, this, this sin, this woman who does it is a common drain. And I wonder, what did he mean by that? Well, T Watson was also very good at word pictures. And he said, a believer's body is a living temple and his soul a little heaven bespangled with graces as so many stars. The body of a harlot is a walking dunghill, and her lesser and her soul a lesser hell. Is that degrading enough for you? Adultery, using your body in that way, is debasing. Oh, but you say, come, let us fill our hearts with love. Let, let us come and fill our time with love. And so you march off to a hotel or some other place, 
And the Bible says that you fill your soul with manure, not love. It's dung, it says. It smells like the stuff that they spray on the fields around here. Oh, you smelled it, haven't you? The Petaluma perfume, where they mix the, the, the manure of cows and horses and mix that with water and spray it on the fields and the aroma pervades the air. That's the picture of adultery. Watson may very well have been referring to the city streets in those times when along beside the city streets there was a ditch that contained the sewage that flowed away. And what you didn't want to do was step in that drain. That's the sin of adultery. And then finally today is the damnation of adultery. Uh, You need to get this part too. Most people worry very little about this part because adultery is so common. The penalties for it have been taken away. Under the Mosaic Law, the penalty was death. Still in Middle Eastern countries, at times, the, the penalty is death. In the New Testament, it was still death. You see Jesus and the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8, and she was surrounded by those who would stone her for adultery. Now, you may think that what Jesus taught and his purpose for being there was to tell people you shouldn't stone an adulteress. But he didn't address whether they should be stoned. That wasn't the point of the conversation. Uh, Whether the penalty was right or wrong is not the subject of that scripture. His point was that the accusers were also guilty of sin. And most likely it was the sin of adultery. And you can't throw stones, he says, unless you're willing to be stoned. I mentioned a moment ago the Saxons in England. For adultery, they burned people. The Romans beheaded those guilty of adultery. The Puritans would put them in stocks and they would put a scarlet letter on a woman that she had to wear around that said that she was an adulteress. You're not likely to have any of those things happen to you today, but don't think that you've escaped the sin. Don't think that there's not a penalty involved and it won't affect you in other ways. And most importantly, and I want you to get this as we close today, and that is unrepentant sin brings damnation. Hebrews 13.4 again, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This is not a sin that you want to die with. Now, it's hard enough that you should have to live with it, but you surely don't want to die with it. If I could put it this way, there isn't a chance for heaven with this sin. 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21, verse 8 says that whoremongers are going to the lake of fire. Revelation 22:15 says they stay outside of heaven. Watson said, every failing is a crime, and every crime is not a heinous crime, but adultery is a heinous crime. Job 31:11, for this is a heinous crime, yet is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. There isn't any sin that won't be punished in hell. The righteous judge is going to judge for every sin. But as we've just read here, as Watson said, not every sin is a heinous sin. Not every crime is a heinous crime. And so there are sins that will be judged in hell, but there won't be as many stripes for them. The punishment is not as severe, although severe, not as severe for a sin like adultery. That is a sin that the Bible says that we're going to do. People will be beaten with many stripes. So the the suffering of hell has increased for it. Why? Well, you, you repeatedly heard it. This is a sin that gnaws at God's character. And we have to be faithful because that pictures God's faithfulness. 
Jeremiah 5 said it's a difficult sin to pardon. God said, how am I going to pardon you for this? The answer to the question is, you won't be. You'll be punished severely. Now, I explained the nastiness of the sin with all that I dared to say. So what do you do? How, how are you going to look at this sin? How are you going to answer to God when you stand before Him? If you die with this sin, there isn't a way to expunge the record. And so you die with the sin, or else you find a way of forgiveness. Die with faith in Christ, and He'll take away the penalty for you. That's what Jesus did. He came to die to take away sin, and adultery is sin. And every sin that we commit, no matter how vile it is, the adultery, no matter what it is, Christ can take away because He suffered that much. And so you confess your sins. You agree with God that I'm guilty. I deserve death for what I've done. And unless you admit that unworthiness and you plead for God's righteousness, you cannot be forgiven. Is it possible to be forgiven? Well, let me show you how it happens. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. We'll finish these verses. In verse 9, it said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then we come to verse number 11. But such were some of you. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthians had committed all those sins in that list. All of those sins. But they didn't bear the penalty for any of them. And that's because they were washed in the blood of Christ. They were sanctified and they were justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the way that you wash away the vile sin of adultery. If you've ever been involved in that, if there's something that's in your life today that, that God would look at and say, you violated my law, and I know many of us have, here's our remedy. Here is our solution. It's the only one that exists. Your sins must be washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what His blood does is wash away the blackness of hell in your soul. And so the exhortation from Scripture is, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the way that you escape the penalty, the damnation of this sin. Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing our sins. Lord, as the commandment unfolds in the Scripture... We can see that there's none of us that has actually escaped it. We think that perhaps we're okay because in our marriage vows that we've never actually stepped out on husband or wife, never really done that. Then we find out that we're involved in so many other ways, so, so many things that, that take our minds away and, and we have lust in our hearts and we think about these things and we see the wrong things and we grasp at those things. Lord, we see that we're guilty of the very sin that, is, that we're told to stay away from. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It includes so many things, and all of us are guilty in many ways. But Lord, we ask you that, that people would come with their hearts in repentant faith, asking you to save them from that sin. Forgive us of it, Lord, and wash our sins away in the blood of Jesus Christ.
Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy and your grace because you could leave us in the sin and we could die and go to hell and we would have no just complaint that we should. So we thank you for, in your mercy and your grace that Jesus Christ gave his own life to save us from those sins. Open up hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I can well imagine that uh, this is probably the subject that most people would very much want to stay away from, not the most popular thing that we can talk about today in a society where we're bombarded from every side with every temptation that can possibly be had by all people in so many different ways that people just don't want to hear this stuff anymore. How could we possibly believe that there's condemnation that is involved in such things? That's what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, as we need to repeat so many times, the Ten Commandments are to drive us into the ground, to bury us so deep that we can't get out, to realize we have sinned against God and we have no hope but Jesus Christ. So it teaches us to come to Him, to look up to Him, and take Him as Savior because He's the only one who can save us from these sins. And if you don't get that out of the Ten Commandments, if you come away from that thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person, you haven't understood it all. Because it was there for nothing else than to drive you to Christ and show you how sinful that you are. And we're all that way. The preacher standing here today is that way. So you don't, I don't have anything on you as far as sin is concerned. We're all saved the same way by the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.